people are most likely to embrace a solution when it's provided within the context of a problem they care about solving. With that understanding and that relation to the, the solution, with that context, then they'll be primed and ready to hear what you have to say. You're listening to the Start Right Now podcast, and I'm your host, Chloe McKenzie. I'm excited to help you get off the sidelines and finally step into your calling. So let's get started right now. Welcome back to another episode of the Start Right Now podcast. Today, I'm excited because I'm going to laser in on some nuggets uh, that, you know, I probably haven't come across before when it comes to communication, when it comes to leading more effectively, when it comes to using your words in a more intentional way to get the impact that you desire. I have as a guest with me on the show today, Neil Gordon. He helps experts become the face of a movement. He works with executives, influencers, thought leaders. Uh, He works with people all over the globe as a communication expert, helping them to deliver their message more succinctly and more powerfully. So I want to welcome Neil Gordon to the show today. Welcome, Neil. Thank you very much for having me, Chloe. Oh, I am very excited to dig into this, especially as a podcaster, as a person in my day job corporate life that does a lot of speaking and influencing. I'm looking forward to getting some extra expert level nuggets from you today. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun to me. Of course, it should, because this is, of course, the path I've chosen in my profession. Right. Which, as I read about your story and your background, this is probably not a place where you would have thought your career was heading. I'd love for you to share a little bit more about your very unlikely backstory um, and how you've made your way here into this space as a communication expert speaker. Well, prior to helping people with speaking, my background was in book publishing and I did a lot of work with ghostwriting nonfiction books and editing books and that sort of even worked on novels once upon a time. And this started with my career at Penguin as a low-level editor there where I was working with New York Times bestselling authors. And the next thing I'm supposed to say is, oh, Chloe, I loved reading as a kid and I always had my face in a book and I went to Amherst and had a 4.0 as an English major and that sort of thing. And It was so completely not the truth of my situation. In fact, I was an awful reader. I hated doing it. I was in the really high percentile for reading comprehension as a small child, as like a first grader. But by the time I was in high school, it had completely tanked where when I took the first time I took the SATs, I got a 330 verbal score, which is in like the fifth percentile and 95% of all other people who took the SATs that year did better than I did on verbal And fast forward a handful of years after college, and now I'm working with New York Times bestselling authors. And it's not because I had an innate and natural proficiency from my most formative years. It's because I struggled to read. I struggled to communicate. And I'm skipping over a lot of details, but at the base of the entire thing was just that I got super curious about how language could so affect me because certain things happened in my early 20s when I moved to New York, that was just like, this is just a really dirty, crowded, noisy city and I need an escape. And so I was on the subways where it was really compounded, that effect. And so I started reading novels and one novel in particular, A Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving, 
just so blew my mind because it didn't end the way I thought it was going to end. And so I questioned all of my beliefs about the world as a whole. And when I realized that a book had done that, then I just had to figure out why. And that led to me a couple of years later getting the job at Penguin. And so it didn't happen because I was always good at it. It was because of how much I struggled, but then how much it affected me that led to everything that followed. Mm, So it was this curiosity that you had, like obviously one defining moment, but a curiosity in your mind about how did this thing that I believed about language or even your own ability to communicate, like how did that switch into what if language and communication worked a little bit like this? I'm curious, uh, what was the insight for you? You know, What did you discover upon, I'm, I'm guessing, many years of searching after this point to say, why did that book hit me so hard? I would say that that book in particular was so impactful because I had been raised in a conservative, conservative Jewish household where we kept kosher and we changed all our dishes over for Passover and fasted on Yom Kippur. Like it was pretty hardcore. And Judaism, like Christianity and Islam, it's a very theistic worldview. And there is an ongoing conversation with a divine presence. And that whole possibility was shattered for me from reading that book. And it became this more agnostic kind of angst-ridden 20-something, what's-it-all-mean kind of thing. And honestly, that's a pretty cliche thing to happen in one's 20s. But for me, it was just, I had to make sense of the world for myself and would eventually go on a path of personal growth and discovery and went through all sorts of retreats and meditation techniques and all sorts of things over the years, Chloe. Honestly, it's just been a lot. But concurrent to that was an acknowledgement of the fact that that shift happened as a result of language. Somebody wrote a thing, I consumed it, and then I went on this whole other path of discovery. Now, what is the difference then between, you know, we encounter a lot of speakers, a lot of ways now that people can share their message and present and talk, but not all of them have this TEDx level uh, life-changing, insight-provoking impact. What is the difference? What are some of those speakers missing in terms of how they take the experience of the audience to the next level? There was a person I would eventually work with a number of years ago where she headed up a program at a children's hospital. I happened to be volunteering there, which is how I knew her. And it was a unique program that gifted books to the children staying in the hospital and also sent volunteers like myself bedside to read to the kids and stuff. And she struggled in the exact way you just described in that there's like this TED-like level for some thought leaders and experts and all of that. And then everyone else who is still an expert in their own right is kind of struggling to get their message out there. And she was an example of that because it was this lovely program, one of a kind throughout the country. And people after 10 minutes would just be glazed over and bored out of their minds and then just politely clap at the end of her little 10 minute presentations. And one day I showed up for my shift and I found out she was dreading this upcoming talk. I said, would you like to talk about, would you like to figure out what you're going to say? And she said, yes. And we worked it out, sent her on her way. And I saw her that afternoon 
I asked her how it went. She said this time they were held wrapped at attention from the moment she started speaking. And at the end, instead of just politely clapping like they usually did, they rushed up to her with business cards and one of them even invited her to apply for a grant. And our whole conversation that day took two minutes. It was just a rearranging. What she and so many experts struggle with is the fact that they've immersed themselves in their expertise for often years. Some of the people who come to me have known their stuff for decades. When it comes time to help an individual client, they just respond to the problem with their expertise and it works. Or any given situation, they're able to do that. But in becoming an expert, they've all forgotten a critical, fundamental thing. And that is what it's like not to know something. By forgetting what it's like not to know something, you just launch into all of your expertise and just vomit out your stuff. It's called the show up and throw up. You you say, here's all the things. So in case of her 10-minute presentation, she was like, here's like 10 minutes of stuff all about our program. And of course, they just glazed over because it was just an overwhelm. She forgot what it was like not to know something about her program. And so that that becomes the critical error that so many experts make. So is the difference then more of a storytelling approach versus a a show up and throw up versus knowledge? How would um, I or anybody who's listening um, that has expertise on a particular topic, what mindset do we need to put ourselves in to remember that we're speaking to people that don't have the expertise that we have? When my father retired from teaching, he did some substitute teaching and he was suffering with the what he considered the indignity of not getting a key to the classroom that he taught in. And he would have to wait for the custodial staff to let him in. And this happened for all the teachers and he was embarrassed and felt he felt it undermined his authority as a faculty member. And he, when he was a teacher, he would go guns a blazing. He was very powerful in the teacher's union. He would always confront the administration. So he had this confrontational way of solving problems. And I sat him down, I was like, dad, he said, well, he sent me, actually what he did was he sent me an email he wanted to write to the principal and say, you have to change this now. And I said, dad, let's figure this out. Let's do this a different way. And he wrote an email and sent it. And the following day, the principal saw him in the hallway and said, I hear you, let's meet. And then they all got their keys. What was it he did in the email? What did I have him do? I had him start the email with a very different approach. Instead of something like, we demand that we have keys. He said, we are a group of substitute teachers who have concerns about the safety of our students. And then he described how not being able to lock or unlock the doors, compromising the student's safety, even when they had a lockdown the previous year, students went to other classrooms because they didn't feel safe because the subs couldn't lock the doors or anything like that. And so the whole point of the letter was not about the problem as he understood, as my father understood it as a sub, it was the problem as the principal understood it, which was the safety of the students. People are most likely to embrace a solution when it's provided within the context of a problem they care about solving. And so in this larger desire to share one's expertise with the world and to circle back to your question, what is it that they're doing? They're framing it in terms of their solutions instead of the problem as their audience might potentially A, understand it and B, relate to it. And so with that understanding and that relation to the the solution, with that context, 
then they'll be primed and ready to hear what you have to say. Then you introduce your expertise and that's what gets them invested in implementing it. Mm-hmm. So they don't care unless they care. They don't care unless it's about something that actually matters to them in their lives. So adjusting your story accordingly. I love that. Very like foundational when we think about marketing, right? I'm sure a lot of people are using speaking and presenting as a way to market their services, products, opportunities, right? Um, coming from a lens of always remembering what's important to your audience is really what makes the difference. That's right. And you mentioned marketing, Chloe, and it's a perfect analogy because when we hear about writing copy for an ad or something like that, we start with a pain point often. We start with the problem that the person who might click on the ad would want to solve. And the realization I had, it was a number of years ago now, I was like, why are we limiting that just to copywriting? Why wouldn't we do that as a speaker or in giving an elevator pitch or in writing an email to a colleague so as to influence them? Why wouldn't we frame things with that level of empathy so as to get them to buy in? And I'm sure this concept works well when you think about personal relationships and even any meetings that you attend, getting buy-in from your bosses and leaders and stakeholders, kind of grounding yourself in what's going to be important to them in the message that I deliver? Why will they care about this grievance or, or issue that I have that needs their support in solving? Right. It's just such a fundamental gift to another human to show them that they are seen and heard, that they are understood. And in conveying that sense that they're seen and heard, they will just melt. Their preconceptions will go away and they'll be like, how do we do more of this? How can we go deeper with this? This person gets me and I trust them. And so it, it just can't be understated how valuable it is to set up our content in this way. There's a, there's, I'm sure that you and many of our listeners have heard this, that content is king People talk about how content is king, but I like to change one letter in that statement and actually say context is king. And that's going to be the game changer for all different sorts of content. Mm, Love that. How does this idea, you have this concept called the silver bullet idea, and I'd love to dig into that a little bit. Um, You know, where does that fit uh, in terms of how important is this concept compared to the grounding in what's important for our audience uh, to hear from us? Where does the silver bullet idea fit? Well, the really good news, Chloe, is that it all kind of comes together into a, a cohesive whole and can be demonstrated through something that happened to me a couple of years ago, where I went to a happy hour the night before a three-day conference I was attending, and a bunch of us got together and We were there, some of us were there on the earlier side and there was, so we were all standing in one circle of like eight or 10 people all having one conversation. And at one point, the person who organized the happy hour just turned to me and said, Neil, what do you do? Now, the question, what do you do is a prime example of when you might give an elevator pitch, right? Where you say the nature of your stuff in 30 seconds or a minute or however long people are willing to give you. And I started to talk and about 15 seconds into my speaking, I was interrupted by everyone in the circle and they all started talking amongst themselves. Now, that sounds really rude, right? That's like, how could they do that to Neil? And this is a guy who's about to talk about elevator pitches and his is so bad that he's getting interrupted and derailed. Well, the truth of the matter is, is that they interrupted me, not because they were bored or disengaged. 
but because they were so excited and so electrified by something I had just said. And so the, what happened in those 15 seconds forms basically three quarters of what I recommend people do in a 30 second elevator pitch. And that I started with the problem that my work helps people. Like basically what I said is something along the lines of there are thought leaders and other visionaries who struggle to get other people on board with a different way of doing things as represented by their expertise. Right. So I started with the problem, which is what we just talked about with my dad, with the keys and all of that. Right. And then I just simply said, what they often do is make it all about their expertise, the show up and throw up. They just talk all about their stuff the entire time in the hopes that it's going to attract others to it. So I set up the typical and flawed solutions, the things that people think they need to do, but are actually not going to work that well. And then the third sentence was what you just cited as the silver bullet. I just simply said, effective communication values the recipient over the sender. And what I did is encapsulate all of my expertise, years and years of being a communication and book and public speaking expert, all down to one sentence. Effective communication values the recipient over the sender. The silver bullet is a one sentence recipe for all of your expertise or a specific aspect of it. I mean, I write articles or even just short emails to my list and they have little mini silver bullets. But the point is, it's a technique that encapsulates everything you want to say in a single cause and effect sentence. When we take this action, we get this outcome. When we value the recipient over the sender, our communication will be effective, right? And that's when they interrupted me. It's like, oh, that's true. You really have to make it about the other person. You really have to show up for them and make sure that, that they're getting value and blah, 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 blah. Eventually, several months, months <laughs> several minutes later, they circle back. So, so what do you do, Neil? And then the fourth and final part of the elevator pitch is to describe what you do. Like, what you do. well, I'm a communication expert and a consultant. And I help speakers and authors to really transform their message and attract all sorts of people to their stuff or whatever. I, I mean, that sentence for me always changes, frankly, but something along those lines. We talk about it being an elevator pitch, but we can really turn it into an elevator speech that it becomes a vehicle for empowering the other person because that silver bullet, that recipe leads to the aha moment that says, oh, wow, that's right. That is what you need to do. And people think about it for themselves as opposed to just being, what do you do for a living? So it becomes an act of service. We're going to have to spend some time on this because there's such beauty in the simplicity of what you just said in terms of this silver bullet concept. Uh, I'm hearing, you know, when you talked about the typical advice, you're almost setting up the tension uh, that you're about to break with something very contrary, right? But it's overwhelming thinking about how do you package your knowledge and experience into like one short little simple sentence. So how can myself, how can anybody listening to this uh, start to, to think about the things that they know and condense it into this silver bullet for their own elevator speech? I sometimes get a yes and sometimes get a no to this question. And so all answers are totally fine. Just so you know, Chloe, have you ever seen the movie Moneyball? I want to say yes. Okay. I'm pretty sure that I have. Okay. <laughs> pretty sure. But I, who knows? Probably who knows? bits and pieces these days. 
you know, with the kids can't really get through. I all, spring like, this on. I you know? yes, yes. I spring this on people, and it's possibly a little mischievous of me because sometimes people, oh yeah, I love this. I don't know, but what it is for those who haven't seen the movie, it came out about ten years ago, and it stars Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill. Philip Seymour Hoffman's in it too. And Brad Pitt is the general manager of the Oakland Athletics, the the major league baseball team. And this takes place back in 2002, I believe, when the A's broke the American League record with the most consecutive wins in a season. And they also tied the Yankees for the most number of wins throughout the league for the whole season, right? But prior to that, they had just not been doing well. They're a small market team. They're spending about a third on their payroll, like, I think it's like 40. I always screw up the zero. How many zeros are in these numbers? I think it's like 40 million on their roster instead of 120 million, like the Yankees, maybe. So how did they do it? And toward the beginning of the movie, Jonah Hill is a fictional character in the movie. He explains what we now know as the concept of Moneyball. He says there is an epidemic failure in how most baseball teams are managing their teams in that they think they need to buy players. But what they actually need to do is by runs. The point isn't to get the hottest, sexiest players. The point is to get the people who get on base the most and score the most. And that's how you win. And that's how they got such an amazing outcome from such a low cost team. The reason why I've taken us through that whole thing just now in response to the question, how do we find our silver bullet? Is that what Jonah's character does is he cites an epidemic failure as a way to demonstrate with clarity what to do instead. And the reason why this becomes such a powerful tool is that contrast leads to clarity. It's not the only way to find your silver bullet, but if you're looking for, I guess for lack of a better word, a hack, I I kind of take exception to that word being overused all the time. But if you're looking for a relatively simple way to foray into this distillation work, contrast your expertise, your solution, with that which you deem to be an epidemic failure. So you say the epidemic failure in coaching is that most people focus on the problem, but the real way to coach someone is to focus on solutions, something like that. And so you just go through that kind of fill in the blank exercise of what you deem to be an epidemic failure, and that's going to lead to, potentially going to lead to the kind of clarity that helps you to say, this is the key to solving this problem. This is my silver bullet. Mm, I like that. So the epidemic failure could also be, let's say, if you're an entrepreneur or a business owner, it could be what you're seeing other competitors do on the market that you don't necessarily agree with their approach or strategy in contrast to your own. Right. That's exactly right. And I, in an earlier version of the exercises I take people through in my, in my program, what I would often do is help them to determine, is there thing, a contrast to how the user goes about doing it, or is it in contrast to how the competitors go about doing it? And it could be either one or in some cases, both, but in terms of keeping it simple, it could be like, what is it that you see as the real failure here? Is it in the way your competition does it? Or is it in the false beliefs that people have for themselves? But in any way, you just pull on that thread and see what jumps out at you. And you can, you can find some gold there. Mm, I can see how this can really be something that, to your point, helps you open up discussion and, you know, spark some curiosity, which is in the context of 
especially as a business person, uh, just a way to deepen the conversation, build a little bit more rapport because you're trying to get below the surface. Yeah. And it, it also bakes right into the concept of a unique selling proposition or a unique value proposition in that how do you set yourself apart and avoid your offer being commoditized, being just this perceived as a commodity where all you can do is compete on price. You can create that unique value by citing the, the problems, the flaws in how it's typically done and say, this is the actual way to do it instead. And if you're in a discovery call or if you're doing a webinar or a video sales letter, or even just even like a three minute video on Kickstarter, whatever it is, you can define that unique value using the silver bullet as a concept. When we think about trying to communicate and, you know, in the spirit of having our own silver bullet and methodology, from a marketing perspective, it's very uh, almost like instinctive to come to a place where you're like, here's my signature program. Here are the acronyms to remember the steps and the formula. I'm just looking at uh, some of your past reading and past work where you say you should never educate people on your methodology using a clever acronym of different steps and components. Crack that open for me then. Let's, uh, you know, distill the the myth here. Why is not Why is that not the right approach? I want to qualify the the content because I do go on record as kind of railing against these clever acronyms and all of that. However, that's often in the context of giving what we might call a signature talk or a keynote speech or something like that, where what a lot of speakers do is they break down their clever acronym as the meat of the talk. They say, well, it's five steps to do it. And here are each, each is a letter kind of thing. And then they spend... 35 or 40 minutes of their talk, just breaking down that acronym. And that just becomes more of like, more of that show up and throw up that we were talking about earlier. I'm not opposed to a clever acronym, like in and of itself. I think that the, what a lot of people get tripped up on is the belief that if they go up and speak for 45 minutes, they need to give a condensed version of their whole system in order to provide the value when a keynote or some kind of signature talk is meant to help people to go deeper into the work. And so I wouldn't make the acronym the basis of the talk, but I would make it the basis of a book or a day-long retreat or a five-day retreat or something like that, where you have a chance to immerse yourself in the methodology. That's when you bring it in. The idea is that you make your signature talk about the silver bullet, the big idea, that umbrella statement and get them indoctrinated into this other way of doing things. And then they could either buy the book at the back of the room, or they could go and do your signature program or whatever it is to truly immerse themselves and become more proficient at implementing and integrating that those concepts. And so I'm not against information. I'm not against the acronyms in and of itself. I also like to say that the only hard and fast rule of communication is that there are no hard and fast rules. And so with that said, Using the word never is sexy for headlines and marketing and all that, but I also want to check myself there. I don't truly believe that never is a good word to use when we're really being purists about this too. I just want everyone to know that, that this is not about being absolute. This is about edging, like nudging people toward best practices that by and large tend to be most effective. Okay. Okay. I'll let that one slide then. So (laughs) if there was one tip 
that you could leave listeners with that would make them more effective in communicating right away? They're going to walk away from this, stepping into their meeting, stepping into conversation with their spouse, meeting somebody at a coffee shop, giving an update on their uh, project status in their meeting. What's the one takeaway that people can action today to communicate more effectively? When it comes to something like the the four-part construct for the elevator pitch that we talked about earlier, when we think about that, we might get into the mindset of being super formal and super, well, that guy, Neil, on, on Chloe's podcast said, got to do these four things. So what do you do? Oh, well, I have to stop. The problem is this. And then the typical solutions are this. And here's my silver bullet kind of thing. And so the mistake there is to not align the situation with the tone or the formality. And so the tip is to base, yes, to start with the problem, start with something that will help the other person to get to buy in, but to bring it in in an informal way that matches the situation. So if you're having a casual conversation, you might start with positioning your expertise in an equally casual way. So instead of saying the problem is this, and then typically, you know how when you're working with a coach, they often have you do this, this, and that. And it can be kind of, kind of a hard thing to get through or whatever. And they'd be like, if they've ever been coached before, yeah, yeah, totally. I understand that. Yeah. And what they typically do is this, this, or that is like, yeah, I've been talked to several coaches who do it exactly that way. Well, and then you provide your silver bullet. So the tip is to make it match the tone of your communication with the context in which you're offering it so that it's, not like completely incongruent because if you if you go into a super formal speech in an informal setting they won't hear anything you say because they're just like well i just asked this guy a simple question and now he's giving me this whole thing that's sort that sort of issue so so the tip is just to match your formality with the setting and you'll be good to go Mm, I've got a talk I'm doing to the company this week. So this is going to be great tips. I'm already thinking about where do I need to make edits to my content. So I so appreciate the gems here that you've been sharing throughout this uh, interview. Where can people find more resources from you if they want to go a little bit deeper and start to work through their messaging um, for their business and beyond? Generally, you can find me at my website, neilcanhelp.com. And if you're interested in having a little fun and getting to know yourself as a speaker and an expert, you can take my speaker quiz, which you can go directly to neilcanhelp.com forward slash quiz. And you'll learn some tips about what you can do in the first 10, 15 seconds of your speech to have people captivated like my, like my friend at the children's hospital did that one time that you can draw them in right away. And so you'll learn a whole bunch of cool stuff about yourself and about how to be more effective as a speaker just from answering a handful of questions. Well, Neil, this was so informative and so practical just in thinking about how to how simple touches might actually help us be a lot more effective in communicating if we're a little more intentional in thinking about the words that we use, the context that we're using them in. So thank you for being a guest on the show and thank you for all of the amazing tips that you provided today. Well, thank you very much for having me, Chloe. It's been a delight to be here. Make sure you go and check out Neil's resources at neilcanhelp.com. Lots of great 
downloads, quizzes, resources. Check out his blog. There's resources on there as well. Um, But I hope you'll go and get started working on your communication strategy starting today. You know what to do. Get started right now.